Ephesians chapter 2 here, and we'll start reading in verse number 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. We come before the throne asking for what it seems like others in this country are proclaiming that they have, revival. I don't know what's going on in those other places, but I know what I personally need here. I know what we need, Lord, and it's that we need an outpouring from you, Lord. We need to sup with you this morning. We need you to unveil your word to us this morning. We understand that a revival in the life of a believer is when a stagnant Christian takes a new step of obedience in following you. Lord, I pray that you revive our hearts. I pray that even this morning as we sit here and listen to your word, Lord, that I may be put aside and that your word may be exalted and that even in our lives we're challenged to move forward again in obedience and following after you. May the sleepiness of our flesh not hinder us from seeking you this morning. May the hardness of our hearts not hide us from your word this morning. Lord, with all urgency, may you send your spirit upon us this morning. Fill us with the reality that there is nothing more that we need in our hearts than to be right with you. Strengthen us. Let us go out this morning clinging to uh, the life that you have given us. May we sing the words of Augustus Top Lady, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Lord, may we leave here this morning clinging to what you have done, not to anything that we have accomplished. May we not be so prideful this morning that that which we have attained in this life has brought more value to us in our lives now than the one who's blessed us with it. May we withhold nothing from you. Like Isaac did not, Abraham did not withhold Isaac. He did not forget that you were the one that blessed him. 
May we not forget this morning that you are the one that blessed us with all that we have this morning. Let us be captivated by your word. Let your word bring us to our knees. Work again in us. And may these dead bones live. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning is of this fourth verse in chapter 2. Ah, the main emphasis of this morning is this phrase, but God. Man in his natural state is just utterly helpless. We've seen this in the last three verses uh, when we read and, and studied last week that we were dead in trespasses and sin, meaning we were, we were enslaved to sin. When we walked in time past according to the prince and the power of the air, according to the course of this world, we were in this world, yet we were without hope. Verse 3 brings to light that we were in condemnation. We were in a state of awaiting judgment. But here in verse 4, it's the sweetest words in all the scriptures. After such a deadly diagnosis, we hear this word, but God. No two words have ever changed the course of history than these two words, but God. No two words have ever stirred up more emotion of mankind than these two words, but God. No two words have brought more hope to humanity than these two words, but God. It is light in a darkness. And these two words really laid the entirety of the gospel message, but God. You were dead in sins. But God, you were in captivity to the prince and the power of the air. But God, you walked according to the course of this world. But God, and yet this is the summary of our life. We were in this. But God, but God set us free. We have not really left as we touched back to in verse 19 of chapter 1. But Paul is expressed in what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. We looked at this. Our hearts were moved by God's love towards us. We spoke about it in life understanding that verse 19 offers to us that the exceeding greatness of God's power was not to the universe. It wasn't manifested when he created the sun and the moon and the stars. It was not manifested when he created the angels, but the exceeding greatness of God's power was manifested toward us who believe. Yet when we turn back to Genesis chapter 1, we are amazed right? That when we read of the account of creation, how God out of nothing created everything with his spoken word, yet we're reminded even here that that wasn't the greatness of his power. It was in us. What is this even more? It is to bring even more to light 
that just as there was nothing when God created everything, there was absolutely nothing in you when God saved you. There was nothing worthy. You know, I seen just the other day that people were biting their nails and, and they were hoping that we're somehow with the Bengals going to sign T. Higgins to another contract. All the people are going crazy. How are we going to come up with money to keep T. Higgins? And they say, well, wherever he ends up, he's going to end up being worth millions and he's going to get millions and whatever team that gets him is going to be fortunate to have him. I believe that sometimes that's how we kind of view ourselves when God chose us. <laughs> that we were just this valuable asset. That whatever team we was going to be on, we was going to be worth having. That we brought so much to the table. How could we not be picked? How could we not have mercy lavished upon us? How could we not have love lavished upon us? I mean, after all, look how good we are. Yet Paul again brings to the text that we weren't even bench warmers. We weren't even on the field. We walked according to the course of this world. But yet even in this situation, Romans 5 and verse 8, Paul said, but God commended his love toward us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. These words explain how the whole sum of our salvation, but it says even more. But God is the basis of really, it is the explanation of divine initiative. Verses one through three says, this is exactly where you were in sin, in service to sin, loving sin, bound in sin. But God means that he is the one that set course to find you. But God means that he was the one looking for you. And we, we have no reason to brag in our own being. God came looking for me. When he came to me, he, uh, the headlines wasn't that day. Hey, God, look at Danny Hall. He's the one you want. Hey, God, this is the, this is the guy who's going to end up being the one who changes the world. Not so. Not so at all. But God means that we have a great Savior in spite of being such a great sinner. Somehow we view ourselves as such an amazing catch, but it's just not so. As Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 6 brings to light, from the sole of our foot to the crown of our head, we are wounds, bruises, and putrefying sores. That's all we were. But God, God not only took the divine initiative, but God is the explanation of his divine intervention in human affairs. We were dead, but God intervened and quickened us when we were dead in trespasses and sin. We were enslaved, but God set us free. We were trapped, but God set us free. We were self-destructing, but God gave us hope. We were lost in sin, but God gave us new life, new purpose, a new meaning. And I'm sure that as we look back in our lives prior to Christ, we can add to the list of what God has done when he intervened in our lives. Hear me now. This, is, was, this was not an attempt to, 
what Paul was saying. Paul was explaining to the Ephesians how God, in the exceeding greatness of his power, in this intervention, not only the initiative God took to come to us, but God in this initiative of come to us had already planned this intervention. This intervention was that God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and yet he who knew no sin would become sin for us there on Calvary's hill. And yet there on Calvary's hill, he would take the punishment of our sins. You hear me now? It was our sins that nailed him to the cross. It was our sins that put him there. The day that Christ died on the Calvary's hill, he took the punishment of a murderer. He took the punishment of us liars. He took the punishment of us deceivers, of us drunkards. Remember what our text says. We were all in times past children of disobedience. Yet on Calvary, he took the punishment for all those who did believe. But he did not end there. And would, as Paul points out here in Ephesians, by the exceeding greatness of God's power, would raise Christ from the dead. And through this intervention, and through the exceeding greatness of his power, the murderer would get new life. Through the exceeding greatness of his power, the thief, the liar, the cheater, all those who plunge beneath the blood will lose all their guilty stains. He took the initiative, but God, he took the intervention, but God sent forth his son. But let me further emphasize here that not only did God take the initiative, not only did God plan the intervention, but there is a dangerous issue at hand in verse number four with those two words, but God. In verses one through three, we see exactly who we are prior to God intervening in our lives. We were the worst of the worst. Yet we see here, approaching this verse number four, this is what we were, but then God. God is holy, holy. And yet when we come before him, this is where we were. Wounds, bruises, and putrefying sores. And God, can you imagine yourself in this condition? And you now find yourself standing before God who is holy, holy. Isaiah chapter 6 said that they cried, holy, holy, holy. is the Lord God Almighty. John chapter 1 and verse 5 said, this then is the message that we uh, have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Habakkuk says, I think in the third chapter, that God cannot even behold evil, neither can he even look upon it. Yet we find ourselves, this wicked, depraved sinner, his verse 4 says, has found themselves in a condition where they are before God. And this is terrifying. This brings us to a place of trembling that he is holy and he is just. And as verse 3 emphasizes, we are in light and in standing for divine judgment. And what God uses to pronounce divine judgment, the, 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 the meter in which he measures what judgment you should give, the meter is his own righteousness. 
And this is what, what I'm trying to say is this. The issue that fallen mankind has is not sin, really. The issue that fallen mankind has is God. Fallen humanity's issue is that they will stand before God. Cain thought he was okay, did he not? When he slew Abel, he thought he was just fine. Until what? Until he had a conversation with God. Adam and Eve thought they were just fine. We'll sew up some leaves here and hide ourselves in the garden, and everything's going to be just fine. Until they had what? A conversation with God. You see, the, the problem with us in our lives, we say, well, you know, I sinned, but, you know, it's not a big deal. That's because you're viewing it as your own standard. The problem that we have today is that we have to stand before God. But our text here, Paul says, but God, God has arrived on the scene in the sinner's life. But that's not what got Paul so excited. In the sense that, yes, God has arrived on the, on the scene. But what has Paul so excited, you can kind of see in verse number five. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace, you're saved. Paul is excited that God has arrived on the scene. Why? Why can he have such excitement about but God? Because what God has required for sinful man to be saved, God has also provided. This is great news. There's a tragic news that we have to face in a reality even in our own life today. You can't do anything to get your own salvation. That's the bad news, no matter what you do. The good news is you don't have to. God has already provided it in his son. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. God provided Christ. When God could not look upon us as fallen humanity, God the Father sent forth his righteous holy son to die for those who uh, would be saved so that he could, we could be seen as the righteousness of God. If you would to summarize verses 1 through 10, I guess you would summarize it in a simple way that God has provided a way. But God. Now, look, look how this is handled. We said that God is righteous, that he is holy. This is his attribute. This is his character. It is immutable. I mean, this will never change about God. He is forever holy. And yet we read about his interaction, about this intervention. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy. Now, this word rich, it's an adjective here. And it simply means this. When you read the word rich, it is something that exists in a large amount. But even more, the word rich means that that which exists in a large amount has value. He said, but God, who is rich in mercy, which God has been rich to uh, towards us in mercy. And listen, if you have lived your Christian life thus far, if you're here and you're saved and you have not arrived at the place where you thank God that the fact that he is rich in mercy, you have failed to see who you are before God. You have failed to check your Christian life with the Holy Scriptures. 
because I've been saved since 2008, and I can tell you it is on the daily that I thank God that he is rich in mercy about how I fail him. But God, he says here, is rich in mercy. God poured out mercy upon you when all you deserved was wrath. When all you deserved was judgment, uh, God gave you mercy. That, that just has like this wonderful ring to it. Some whatever, however many years ago when me and Lauren first got married, I'll never forget, you know, we were learning to do budgets together. She was structured and I wasn't structured. She wanted to keep money in the bank. I wanted to keep money in my pocket. And so we're learning to do life together. And I'll never forget it. The Sunoco right there on Kemper Road in Tri-County. I pulled right into it. And I just grabbed a whole bunch of stuff. And I put it on the counter. And that's a busy Sunoco. And I gave them my check card. And they swiped it. And they said, declined. My ears started sweating. I said, swipe it again. They swiped it again. She's like, sir. Her voice is getting lower, which only lets me know there's more people standing behind me, right? And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no, swipe it again. She swiped it the third time. I left and left the card. Fled for my life in embarrassment. I didn't even turn around and look at the people behind me. I got in the car. I called my wife, and I said, do you know what just happened? I said, she said, I absolutely know what just happened. Exactly what I've been telling you. If you keep spending money like this, we're going to run out of it. Oh, I was sick that day. Oh, not only did I leave my stuff, I had to go back and face it again and get my card. But you know, he says here in this text, but God who is rich in mercy. It means that it doesn't matter what your sins are of times past. Whatever you've piled up on the counter, when mercy, it's time for mercy to intervene in our life, it is sufficient to cover the bill. God is rich in mercy far beyond our understanding, far beyond my imagination. God has been rich in mercy even upon my life. There is enough mercy in heaven for the sinner you will never have sinned outside of the reaches of God's rich mercy, which he poured out on us. Now we ask ourselves this question, why? Why has God poured out this rich mercy upon us? He is holy. I'm not holy. It, it took three verses to summarize, and it could, you could spend a year on expounding upon just how wicked and depraved the unsaved, unregenerated man is before salvation. Yet, the text says why God gave us mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy... I love how Paul says this. For his great love, wherewith he loved us. You know, we, and Paul can't even just call it normal love. He, he doesn't even really say just agape love. This is godly love. Agape is godly love. But he says, it's great agape love that he would love me. But as he's pouring this out, he says, this great love. You know, we live in a society where divorce is on the rise. 
Every time you turn around, oh, you know, well, we're just not in love no more. Well, you know, uh, time hasn't done him any favors, and, uh, you know, I'm just not attracted to him no more. And the list really goes on and on and on. You know why? Because love in our society is based on the perception of the object in which we are loving. But here, Paul brings to light a greater love than what we have. He says, for his great love wherewith he loved us. This agape love is a love that goes from the subject to the object. It causes goodwill and actions and love to go towards an object, even if they're not worthy of the love. So as the object, as the subject looks down upon the object, even if they fail, they continue to get love. It doesn't matter if the object is cracked. It doesn't matter if the object's fractured. It doesn't matter if the object begins to crumble. The, the, the subject continues to love this object. And this love will give all, even if it means self-sacrifice for the object in which is being loved. This is agape love. He looked down upon fallen, crumbled humanity, saturated in sin. Yet even in this broken state, God looked down upon us with a love that is far beyond our understanding because our love is based on perception, but his love is based on a different standard. And as he looked down upon us in that broken state, this agape love was such a love that even in that state, he sent forth his own son to Calvary's hill for us. What great love, Paul says, is this. You can see the difference between our love and God's love is that God knows it all and is still willing to give it all. Is that not baffling? How many times that, uh, you know, I've heard people say, you know what? She don't know that. She don't know this part of my life. And I ain't going to tell her because I don't want her to be bothering me about it now. I don't want her to know. You know, they believe that maybe if, if their spouse knows a part of their history, it will hinder the way their spouse looks at them today. But that's not God's love. God knows all about us. And loves us all the more. In verse 5, I, I almost love how Paul does this. Now, if you read, which we will, 5, 6, and 7, you'll kind of see that 5, 6, and 7, they flow together. But to kind of give you the excitement that Paul has about 5, 6, and 7, in the, at the end of 5, Paul has kind of an eruption as he begins to think about how he was dead in sins and how he's no longer dead in sins. And as he's telling the Ephesians about what God has done, he kind of blurts out, by grace you are saved. You'll actually kind of see that if you look at verse uh, 5. Even when we, uh, we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Now, you'll notice if you'll just go straight to 6, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. There is a flow there. But as Paul is writing, as he's thinking about this great love and about the salvation that he's experienced in his life, he said, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. 
Now he'll come back to this in verse number 8 when he says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man suppose. But you can really see Paul's excitement about the fact of where he was and where he is today. And it should be the summarization of us all that we, as we begin to tell people who we were and who we are, that we shout for joy that it's by grace we are saved. Titus will go on to say that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. That's right. It's grace that has saved us. So he goes on to say, God loved you. But notice two things about verse number five. Well, one more thing, so to say, because we've already covered this by grace you are saved. But notice how he says something here a little different. We've already covered in chapter one that everything that we are is in Christ. Everything that you have is in Christ. Your adoption is in Christ. Your existence in the beloved is in Christ. Your access to God the Father is in Christ. Everything that the child of God has today is in Christ. But notice how Paul words this. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. That's a little different. Quickened us together with Christ. Does that mean that we were made alive some 2,000 years ago? Yes and no. No, I, I was saved December 28, 2008, and spiritually I was made alive that day, yet I was also made alive with Christ. We were all made alive with Christ. The reality of it all is in Christ we have everything because we have entered into a new covenant. We are in an eternal union with Christ, identified with him. Our identity is when he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he was raised up, we were raised up. When he was seated at the right hand of his heavenly father, we were seated at the right hand of our father in heaven, in Christ, that is. In verse 7, he comes and says this, that in the ages. Now, I don't know about this, but... You know, when my kids won a basketball game the other week, it was one game they won all year, so I had to brag about it. But I was actually really proud. You know, I'm like, they tried, they did all these things, and I, I bragged on them. They actually won a trophy. And I was so happy for them that they did so well. But I want you to see something about verse number seven. Verse number seven is God's eternal trophy case. See if you see this. That in the ages to come, he might show. So, this verse is expounding this. That to in the ages to come, God is intending to show something throughout all the ages. Not only in the past age, but in the next age and in the coming age. And when he has the eternal reign and the new heaven and the new earth comes down, he is going to show something spectacular in all the ages to come. What is it? He said that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward who? Toward us. Through Christ Jesus, we stand today saved, made anew, 
alive. And we stand from now and even in the life to come in the eternal trophy case of the exceeding riches of God's grace in his kindness towards us through Christ. That is the way God views us in this life. This should cause us to tremble when we think ill and speaking ill upon each other. This should cause us to tremble when we think about really how much love and how much dedication and how much time we really want to give to him. Is it not troubling that God from heaven, <laughs> that through the Holy Spirit, he preserved for all of us to read, that we can have this great confidence that he views us as a trophy of his rich kindness towards us through Christ, and he plans on displaying us throughout all the ages, and yet we don't want to come to church, and yet we don't want to fellowship with him, and yet we don't want to worship, and yet we don't want to read. It shows the troubling view in our lives that we do not hold him to the same standard he holds us to and yet the text says where with this great love he loved us <clears throat> the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us through Christ Jesus a Roman matron was being robbed one day and she was asked while she was being robbed where's your jewels at I want all your jewels I, I want them bring them all to me right now in this very moment she began to fumble and began to become nervous the people who were robbing her only became more angry he said I need your most prized jewels right now she stood up and called for her two sons to come from the other room. And when they came into the room, she told the robber, here is my most prized jewels. And so it is that if you was to search all of Scripture, trying to find God's prized jewels, and they were to call from the other room, bring God's jewels, two would merge forth. The bride of Christ, the church, and Jesus Christ. They are his jewels that he has selected to stand before all the ages to explain the exceeding riches of his kindness to us through Jesus Christ. We are not only we oftentimes view ourselves that, you know, well, we're going to live our Christian life. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to do these things here on this earth. And then we're going to get together and be with him forever in heaven. This is all true. But it's more than that. We are an example. We are a testimony throughout all the ages of the kind of God we serve. That amazes me and yet humbles me. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this um, morning hour, Lord, to come and learn about you in your word. Lord, I pray that you'll be with those who are unable to be with us and providentially hindered, Lord, and I pray that you'll strengthen them at this hour, Lord, and we long to see them back here with us, Lord. 
I give great thanks to you for the things that you're doing here. Lord, and I pray that you'll continue to work at the Witten Place Baptist Church. That you'll continue to challenge us, Lord. And that as we see across the airwaves today, as I said earlier, these rumors and words that revival is happening, Lord, may we come to a greater understanding that if we want revival in our own lives, all we must do is take a new step of obedience in service to you. Revive us again, Lord, from the areas that were stagnant, Lord. May we understand just exactly who we are in you. We are a prized possession. Lord, strengthen us, awaken us, stir in our hearts again that you will be on our lips and on our hearts and on our minds and that the world may know that you are a prized possession to us. Lord, we give thanks to you for all that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number 122.